Our text this morning for our Bible study is Jeremiah chapter 26. Please open your Bible, navigate on your electronic tablet or phone to Jeremiah 26. We're in verses 1 through 34. That's the entire chapter. Our topic, Jeremiah is told to stand in the temple and deliver God's word. The title of our message, Temple Stand-In. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we love your word and we're excited, Lord, to hear you speak to our hearts from it. We believe that the spirit who is within us and the spirit who is in this place since we are corporately the body of Christ filled with your spirit is about ready to reveal the heart of God to us. May nothing stand in the way of you speaking to us, your people, whom you loved enough to die for, rising from the dead that we might have eternal life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Johnny Cochran was able to summarize the entire nine-month O.J. Simpson trial, all of its evidence and arguments into one rhyming phrase that no one who heard it will ever forget. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It was brilliant. Four hours later, O.J. Simpson was acquitted. Jeremiah, in our text, he's on trial for speaking against the temple. I'm no Johnny Cochran, but after reading the text, I think it can be summarized into one rhyming phrase. If you will repent, God will relent. Three times in our text, we'll encounter the word relent or relented. Some versions translate it repent or repented, but I think relent better captures the thought being communicated. You see, the person who is described as relenting or at least desiring to relent is God. Let me read the three verses where we find it. Verse three, perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. Verse 13, now therefore amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. And then in verse 19, did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah ever put Micah to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. When a people who are sinning turn from their sin, when they repent of their sin, God relents from punishing them. I'm going to even coin a word this morning, relentful. God is relentful, or as it's put in the New Testament, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Knowing God's heart to relent from punishing sinners, we ought to be relentless in serving him. I'll organize my thoughts around two exclamations. Number one, what a relentful God you serve. And number two, what a relentless servant you are. First of all, let's take a look at God relenting. Now, God does not change his mind, nor is there ever a reason for God to repent in the sense that we normally think of. When the Bible says God repents, it means he relents from punishing sinners because of their repentance. He warns rebellious people to change their minds and their direction before he must punish them for their sin. If they repent, he acts according to his nature to forgive them and to restore them. 
Jeremiah was sent to the temple at Jerusalem to warn the people, change their minds and direction, and to remind them God was relentful. So we pick up the story in verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house and all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Now the fact Jeremiah could speak to all the cities indicates this was one of the three annual feasts in Judah when everyone was required to visit the temple. And so there were a huge audience, people from all over Judah. Jeremiah was carefully charged to speak all the words God gave him and to not diminish even one word. Two things come to mind. First, it's important to read and teach and study the entire Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So whether we are teaching the word or whether you are reading the word, you want to go through it systematically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. There are other ways to study. There are other ways to teach. They are also good, uh, but you want to foundationally be doing that. Otherwise, I mean, I've known Christians, and and you can see this just mathematically, uh, if you're not reading through the whole word and you're not teaching through it, you can go decades as a Christian and not hear certain things in the Bible and be amazed. You can be 30, 40 years a Christian and say, I didn't know that was in the Bible. The book of what? Leviticus? Wow. No kidding. Uh, And and so we want to emphasize that. But secondly, it's just as important in every verse to declare exactly what it says without diminishing its meaning. Now, why would anyone want to diminish the meaning of a verse of scripture of the word of God? Well, there are actually lots of reasons. Let me give you two. One is that sometimes a particular verse might not agree with a decision you've made about your theology. There are, uh, there's an area of study called systematic theology where brilliant men seek to understand the entire word of God in a systematic way. They study the doctrine of salvation and things like that so that they can understand the mind and the heart of God. I actually like reading books on theology. It's a great study. But there are some things that leave you scratching your head. Things like God's sovereignty and man's free will and responsibility. Because there are verses that seem to say that God is absolutely sovereign and man has no decision whatsoever. And then there are equally verses that indicate that men have a free will to decide. And if you lock into a certain systematic theology, what you end up doing is deciding one of those is true and the other is, not that it isn't true, but you reword it or you think about it differently so that it fits what you believe. It's much better to just let the word of God speak for itself and to just teach what is actually there. And then too, and this is more prevalent, when people are in sin, They have a tendency to reinterpret verses that would expose their behavior as sin. Probably the prime example today is the attack on biblical marriage and uh, human sexuality. 
And everybody's trying to say uh, that the Bible doesn't mean what it says when it talks about what is marriage and what is human sexuality, that it was cultural or that was for then and not today or whatever. Uh, the Bible is actually very clear about these things. It's just people don't want to receive it. They diminish the word of God to their own detriment, uh, unfortunately. And so Jeremiah, he said, hey, here's the word, don't diminish a word of it. Verse three, perhaps everyone will listen and will turn from their evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. This is really beautiful. Before giving Jeremiah the words he was to speak and not diminish, God revealed his intention behind those words. They were deep in sin, the people were, but if they would repent, God could relent of punishing them for their sin. Are you in sin? Are you living in some ongoing sin? Some area of the word of God that you know is wrong? Maybe you've diminished the word for some reason in your life. You think it maybe is okay or it's not as bad as it is with other people. The Bible says you should repent. You should change your mind, agree with God, and go in the other direction. What is biblical repentance? It is a complete change of mind with regard to sin, resulting in a change of behavior, a change in the direction that you are headed. H.A. Ironside, great Bible commentator, puts repentance into perspective for us. He talks first about repentance unto salvation, and then he talks about repentance in your life as a Christian. First unto salvation. He says, it can never be out of place to proclaim salvation by free, unmerited favor to all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It needs ever to be insisted on that the faith that justifies is not merely an intellectual process, not simply crediting certain historical facts or doctrinal statements. It is a faith that springs from a divinely wrought conviction of sin, which produces a repentance that is sincere and genuine. And so Ironside points out that salvation is accompanied by repentance and faith. It's not enough to just believe in God or believe there is a God or even to believe that Jesus Christ is God. In the New Testament, the Bible says demons believe that. They know it to be true, but it doesn't do them any good as to salvation. And so Ironside says salvation is a matter of repentance and faith, of agreeing with God that you're a sinner and turning from that sin. It is not a work to repent. It is all of grace. It is all by faith, but there is a heart element to it. Then he goes on to talk about repentance in the life of the Christian. He says this, no man can truly believe in Christ who does not first repent, nor will his repentance end when he has saving faith, but the more he knows God as he goes on through the years, the deeper will that repentance become. A servant of Christ once said, I repented before I even knew the meaning of the word. I have repented far more since then than I, than I did. There is a tendency to think you repent less after you are saved. You've probably heard it said that although a Christian is not sinless, a Christian should sin less. And that, of course, is true. As we grow in the Lord, we sin less. But if we're not careful, we start thinking that only behaviors are sin. And we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm not doing that and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. But 
we want to grow more sensitive not just to our outward behavior but to our inward attitude, our inward understanding. Repentance is an ongoing process in the life of the Christian where we grow more and more and more sensitive to sin, where things that we might not even have considered sinful a year ago, the Holy Spirit is able to show our hearts and say, you know, you're not really Christ-like in this area because of your attitude towards this or that. This is why the Apostle Paul could say late in his life, I am the chief of sinners. He didn't mean that he was out carousing and living licentiously and doing all manner of things. He meant that he was more and more sensitive to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He saw how much work God had done, but also how much more work God was doing in his life. And that's the normal Christian life, to have an attitude of repentance. Verse four. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Shiloh was the original location of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in the early days of the nation of Israel. Jerusalem wasn't conquered until the time of David. David, King David, conquered Jerusalem and made it the capital of Israel. But for years, Shiloh was where the tabernacle was. It didn't prohibit God from punishing the people for their sin by destroying Shiloh and allowing the Philistines to capture the ark. And so he was using this historical example. God was warning Judah that he would destroy their city and their temple just as he had destroyed Shiloh unless they repented so he might relent. God gave the law so there'd be no confusion as to what constitutes sin. And then he sent prophets to make specific application of the law. And then he gave examples of the punishments that he meted out in the past upon unrepentant sinners. The New Testament is filled with exhortations to us as believers to not sin. No confusion as to what constitutes sin unless you try to diminish the word in some way. If you're a believer, you don't really need a prophet to come to you because the Holy Spirit lives within you and one of his ministries is to convict you of sin. And if you look around, you'll see examples of believers who refuse to repent of sin and whose spiritual lives have been ruined and made shipwreck. And so God is very generous in this area. He is very loving. He wants to relent of any future punishment. He says, look, I've given you the word. I've told you what constitutes sin. And, and, and I warn you when you're sinning. I don't immediately judge you. I don't send lightning bolts from heaven. I warn you by the indwelling spirit and by the exhortations you hear in the word of God and by believers coming to you and whatnot. And you can look around and see examples of what, is ha what has happened to people exactly like you in exactly your situation and how they've ruined their own lives and the lives of others. Now, because the lightning bolt doesn't immediately strike from heaven, we tend to think God is not really mindful of our sin, that he's ignoring it. He's not ignoring it, he's mindful of it, and he's warning us. I can't say when or how, but eventually God must deal in discipline with his children who sin. It's not unlike some of you parents 
the spanking is the last resort. You do anything to get your kid to obey. Maybe too much sometimes. And God is like, says, look, you know, just please just get on board. And you've made it clear to your children, this is the way to health and life and candy. If you'll just do this, you can have candy and ice cream and Disneyland and all of those things. If you'll just, and why do they want to be so disobedient? What's well, their sin nature? And you know that you've got to ultimately deal with it. And so that's God is saying, look, I, this is sin. I've told you that. You've got the word. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Eventually, he has to discipline you. He would rather relent in regards to your repentance. Now, rather than focus on the reality of God's eventual discipline, you could look at it this way. When you or I sin, we're despising the cross upon which Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross for sin. He rose from the dead to give us power over sin. And so when I put some person or some possession or some passion that is sinful ahead of the Lord, I'm despising his work on the cross. There's no other way of putting it. Maybe it's a, a kind of you know, harsh way of putting it, but that's the truth. So if I decide, Lord, right now I'm gonna do, I, this is the sin I'm going to commit. I know you're gracious. I know you'll forgive me. Um, uh, you know, my sins are forgiven past, present, and future. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I am despising the cross. What a terrible thing to do to the Lord of glory. I mean, when you really put it in those terms to look at the Lord and say, I mean, how would you like it, you know, if your kids looked at you and said, you know, Dad, I understand exactly what you've said. I know that I shouldn't pass up this boundary, but I despise you right now. I, I, I don't care at all about what you've had to say. I'm gonna do it. I know you're my dad and you're gonna love me no matter what. It's terrible to think of doing that to a person. The fact that God portrays himself as a relenter, it's a reminder you were created to have fellowship with him and that you can never be satisfied by anything other than him. And so, uh, turn away from sin, repent of your sin, head in the other direction so that God can come and have fellowship with you. Now, what a relentless servant you are. We see that in the life of Jeremiah. His very life was at stake. At least one other contemporary prophet, a guy named Uriah, who we'll talk about at the end of this, he had preached this exact same message. He'd been put to death by this same king of Judah. Nevertheless, Jeremiah was relentless in delivering the message. And so verse seven the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him saying, you will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall be like Shiloh and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people saying, this man deserves to die for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your ears. Jeremiah spoke all that the Lord commanded him to speak without diminishing even a word. His words led to his seizure by the temple officials and talk about a speedy trial he was taken right to trial. Verse 12, then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. In other words, repent. 
Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am, I'm in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you, but know for certain that if you put me to death, you will certainly bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Jeremiah offered no defense other than to reiterate his message. You know, when you just simply share the word of God as he has given it to you, you don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to give a defense. You don't really need to give an explanation. God says his word has power. And so when people start to question it or, or yell against it or whatever they do, you just need to reiterate the word. You can say it a different way, but you don't want to diminish it. This is the word of God. And he wasn't concerned about his own life. God's given me a word to speak. I'm speaking that word. I'm clean. If I go and see the Lord today, I'm ready. I've done everything he's asked me to do. Think of all the heroes who risked their lives for the sake of saving others, even others who don't appreciate it, or we might even say carefully, they don't deserve it. Sometimes the person who needs rescuing resists for one reason or another, but the police officer or the firefighter or the EMT or the lifeguard is compelled to rescue them. You know, it's not easy to rescue people. They're all freaked out. I, I remember when uh, Gina was a lifeguard, you know, and you, some, a lot of you have lifeguarded, and you know that it's hard to rescue a drowning person. They want to drown you. They're flailing around and pulling on you and stuff. But you can't just say, well, okay, drown. Sorry, I, I, I jumped in and they were flailing, and I said, see you later. You, know, you watch Deadliest Catch. You know, and you see these, I, I love the, uh, you know, I hate to see people in struggling, but I love the rescues, the, you know, when the Coast Guard helicopter goes out. I mean, those guys are crazy, but I mean, you know, they go in, they don't jump down and they say, well, all right, if you're going to fight me, just, hey, hoist me up, let's go home and have a cup of coffee. I mean, they rescue those people. They have techniques for it, but, you know, and you think, well, who, what are you doing out in the Bering Sea? Is, who wants crab that bad? I mean, my thing is, what do you, you know, you got to rescue people who are that stupid? You're going to be out there on a 100-year-old boat that has a paper-thin hull that hasn't been, you know, overhauled in 27 years with a bunch of guys that are greenhorns? Of course they're going to be in the water and die, and I'm going to risk my life to save that guy so he can make $100,000 in two weeks catching crab? What's up with that? No, they don't think that way. They think somebody's in trouble. I don't care who it is. It's a human life. It's worth saving. Even though maybe in the bigger scheme of things, you know, there are other ways of thinking about it. Christians are lifesavers. We are spiritual lifesavers. We are compelled to attempt to rescue sinners that are doomed for hell. They most often will resist and sometimes violently or at least angrily what kind of a lifesaver would we be if we let them perish because it was too inconvenient or too dangerous? No, we must be relentless in our pursuit of sinners. Verse 16, so the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man has not deserved to die for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord. On that day, at that trial, cooler heads prevailed. Jeremiah was acquitted. 
Verse 17, then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them, but we are doing great evil against ourselves. Now to validate their verdict, they gave a precedent They referenced a prophet from their past, Micah, who had delivered a strikingly similar warning to repent. It reminded them, if even for a moment, that God desires to relent from judgment, that when his people sin, he must judge them, but he would rather relent in response to their repentance. These people, these particular people, as you know, as we've been studying Jeremiah, they're gonna continue in their rebellion and sin. They're gonna continue in their idolatry. This was a momentary fleeting change, not a true repentance. They may have even thought it big of them to have saved Jeremiah's life. When God brings his word to bear on something in your life, deal with it fully and completely. Change your mind and your direction. Receive God's empowering to affect the change. As a Christian, you must believe, and you must believe it because it's true, but you also must believe that God's word is God's empowering. When I read the word of God, it's not like reading a novel or a magazine or even an instruction manual. Sometimes we compare the Bible to an instruction manual. And I understand that. It it makes sense on a plaque or on Facebook, you know, read the instruction manual. But sometimes that gives you the uh, impression that there are always things that you have to do in order to get working properly. Usually a long line of things to do. And sometimes we fake ourselves out and we think, well, I would like to do what God says, but it's gonna take me years to get there. And so in the meantime, I'll just, I'll just kind of move gradually in that direction, which is really a, not what the word is saying. If God brings something to your heart and he says, hey, Gene, this is sin, then he means for me to repent of it, to change my mind and go in the opposite direction, and he's given me the power to do that. God never asks you to do something he doesn't empower you to do. We live in an age in which we think that we need a lot of tutoring and mentoring and all of this kind of stuff to do what is right. And without pushing all of that aside, when it comes to you and God one-on-one, when God tells you what you're doing is sin and to repent of it, he means for you to do just that immediately at whatever the cost. And a lot of times it's because it will cost you something. I don't know how many times over the years I've had to talk to people who were living in sin, in a sinful relationship. I said, you guys, you've got to split up. You're living in sin. Well, I can't afford it. And I've told guys before, I said, you need to live in your car then until you can because you're living in sin. Well, I'm not gonna do that. Well, then you haven't repented. If it costs too much, Look at the cross and see what it costs Jesus Christ to give you power over sin. The way to deal with sin is to realize that it has to be 
killed. It has to be defeated on the cross and to run away from it. Verse 20, now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. When Urijah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt. El-Nathan, the son of Achbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt, and they brought Urijah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Urijah, another prophet contemporary with Jeremiah, delivered the same message, but in fear for his life he fled. Now it's easy to criticize him, especially in comparing him to Jeremiah who didn't flee, and uh, you forget that Jeremiah couldn't flee because they took him right then. And, and so we want to be careful in making this criticism. I don't, think the, I don't think his story is here for us to criticize him. We don't have enough information to say that his fleeing was even an act of disobedience. Plenty of times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the servant of God fled when they saw that there was a plot against their life. Paul the apostle, who was by no means a coward, Last Wednesday night, we saw Paul stoned and drug out of a city. Disciples prayed over him. He got back up and he says, hey, let's go back into that city and continue to preach the gospel. I mean, so he's no coward, but he was let down through the wall at Damascus in a basket when he found that there was a plot against his life. And and so you can't say that every time you run for your life, You're a coward out of the will of God. And so why is this story here? Well, the story of Urijah simply emphasizes that a person speaking the word of God without diminishing it always risks their very life. It may seem less so in a country like ours, but the sharing of the gospel puts you at risk. Maybe it's a risk of losing friends or of being set apart from your family or of being thought a weirdo or of not getting a promotion or of not even getting a job. So there's a risk even in our country. Of course, in most other countries of the world, the undeveloped world especially, you are at risk of your life. Plenty of stories about modern Christian martyrs. Every day Christians are being killed simply for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you and I need to remember that when we share the gospel, our lives are at risk in some way because people don't like to be told that they are essentially no different than Charles Manson, that they're no different than Ted Bundy, that they're no different than Jeffrey Dahmer, in the sense that if they died apart from Christ, they would face the great white throne judgment of God. Their name would not be found written in the book of life and they would be cast alive forever into hell to suffer for eternity. That's not very popular. The gospel's only good news because that's the bad news. The good news is all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so we risk our lives sharing the gospel. Verse 24, nevertheless, the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him into the hand of the people and put him to death. Ahiakim was one of the five people whom King Josiah 
had sent to consult the prophetess Huldah in connection with the discovery of the book of the law. Josiah, they found the book of the law. There was a, a revival. Ahiakim was a part of that. We see here he's the son of Shaphan, who was the royal secretary. Later we'll learn he's the father of Jedaliah, who was the governor of Judah after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so Ahiakim is one of those guys who is a spiritual guy. In the midst of all the terrible things that were going on in Judah at that time, God had a handful of individuals who were yet serving him, and Ahiakim was one of them. And so Jeremiah had an ally, and for that I'm sure he was grateful But with or without an ally, he was relentless to minister the gospel. You know, you don't really know who's going to support you, uh, who's going to stand with you. Um, It's great that Ahiakim did, uh, but that doesn't matter because you stand for the Lord and the Lord stands with you. Could you be described as relentless with regards to your serving the Lord? Could I be described as relentless? I think these are good questions that we ask when we're reading the word of God because we see, well, Jeremiah was relentless. Here's the word of God. God told me exactly what to do. This is how he's gifted me. He's gifted me as a prophet to go into the temple and to share these exact words and he does it relentlessly. In his case, he does it for three decades, risking his life every time he does that in a time of decline for people who didn't really, in one sense, deserve it and weren't listening to him. And so, could I be described as relentless? And the answer, whatever the answer is, I want to be. And I know if you're a Christian, you want to be. If we've lost some of our edge, some of our drive, then we ought to consider the relentfulness of God. People perish but he remains unwilling that any should perish. They're sinners for whom God has provided eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That means that salvation is available to whosoever will believe and those that believe the gospel as brought to them by us, God's servants, they are saved for eternity. How has God gifted you? Stir up the gift or gifts of God in you and serve him with your whole mind, heart, soul, and strength. You know, all of us need to be stirred up from time to time, some of us more often than others. There's nothing worse than, uh, you know, something, you know, maybe, I don't know if you, do you like pulp in your orange juice? Some people like pulp. I always get the pulp free. But I think I should buy the pulp orange juice because it would remind me of being stirred up. Because you know, if you just let the orange juice sit there, whatever it is with pulp, the pulp kind of has a tendency to fall to the bottom. And so you're drinking and you're drinking and you're drinking and then you take that last fateful sip <laughs> and your mouth is filled with orange pulp and it's disgusting. <laughs> and so you have to keep stirring that stuff up and stirring it up and stirring it up so you get it the way that it was intended. And so Christians, that's what the Bible says, is stir up the gift that is within you and we, we need to have that happen from time to time. Nothing wrong with that. Set aside more time for serving the Lord. Pray about taking advantage of more opportunities to share Jesus with others. Strategize where you are in your neighborhood or at your place of employment or at your school. What can I do? What can I wear? What can I say? How can I bring the gospel into this situation? Give more financially to the work of the Lord. 
Look at every area and aspect of your life and say, Lord, I want to be relentless in serving you as you have called me to. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.